I read from God's Word today in our continuing studies of Genesis from chapter 2. We made it to chapter 2 after many weeks. I'll read the first three verses of chapter 2 on the subject of the day of God taking His rest, and then I'm going to add to it an obvious compliment from Exodus chapter 20 about the fourth commandment regarding the Lord's day. Listen to God's Word, 1 Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work He had been doing, so on the seventh day, He rested from all His work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it He rested from all the work of creating that He had done. Exodus chapter 20, Moses is also the human author, writing of things many centuries later, but of course, being the same author, he wrote these two books close together in history, but there's many centuries separating God's setting apart the Sabbath and resting, and then the commandment that came to the people of Israel. The fourth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your maidservant, nor manservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gate. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And this is the Word of our God. A story is told that once a man was approached by a beggar as he walked down a city sidewalk, and the man asked for money, said he hadn't had anything to eat. So the second individual reached in his pocket and found he had seven $1 bills, and he pulled them out, and he thought to himself, well, six are enough for this man to get something to eat, so he handed him $6 and said, here, go get yourself a meal. Well, you might have thought that was a generous enough act, and the beggar would have been pleased with it, but not only did the beggar take the $6, he used his other hand as he reached for the six and struck his benefactor in the face, and then grabbed the other dollar and ran away. Now, what do you think about a beggar who would act in such a way? You'd say, he's certainly an ungrateful scoundrel. But if you agree with that judgment on such a man, then you must think about how sinful human beings, saved by the unmerited grace of Jesus Christ, are given six days by the Lord in which to live out their lives and tend to business and tend to worldly affairs. And yet, quite often, we join with others in really stealing the seventh day that the Lord has said is appointed for something different. We grab it and we run. 
acting too much like that selfish rascal of a beggar for our own comfort. The Scripture says the Sabbath rest was inaugurated by God when He ceased from the work of His original creation. Later, of course, the Sabbath became other things. It was bound by a commandment later on. It was not that originally. And it became a time of opportunity for people of God to be sure that they would have an appointment for worship of the Lord and other works set apart by Him. I find that I, as I've looked back, I found this past week that I've preached on the Sabbath day about six times, I think, as I've been here as your pastor over the years. I've never sought deliberately to preach on the subject. I've always preached on it as it has come up, and it has come up as we went through Luke together, as we went through John together, as we went through Matthew together, as we went through Exodus together, and here it is again in the original root definition of the day in Genesis chapter 2. I would say, and I don't say this egotistically, but I think it would be fairly true that you've had about six times as many exposures to the subject of the Sabbath in the time I've been your pastor as most churches have on that subject in a comparable period of time. Because it's not something talked about today. And as we look about our culture, it's certainly something that has changed dramatically, even in the practice and the minds of Christian people. Now, as I approach the subject, I can assure you that it is not my intent and never has been in speaking about the Sabbath to give you a list of rules or to tell you what you should not do. Unfortunately, that's all too often the only approach people seem to have to the Lord's day. We don't do this. We don't do that. Thank goodness I'm not like all those pagans over there at the mall on Sunday. Let's remove ourselves from that kind of thinking because that's not what this subject is about. God celebrated the consummation of His splendid craftsmanship in creation on the seventh day. And did you also realize, of course, the seventh day was mankind's first full day of life in the world. The first day that the man and the woman stepped forth was a day that the Lord said, now with you two, I have finished what I am doing. Let's celebrate it. Let's give praise together. Let's look upon the goodness of it and take delight in it. Of course, the Sabbath later became something more formalized in the commandment from Mount Sinai. And it changed again in the New Testament as different things were spoken about it, and particularly as Jesus Christ declared himself the Lord of the Sabbath and wanted people to understand that it was not made to be a day of restrictions only, but a day of commitment and joy to the Lord. One interesting note to take up, at least, as you look at Genesis, is to realize that the seventh day is different from the others in the text in that the text does not say there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. For that reason, many theologians have said, as God is teaching us here in His Word, we believe He's teaching us that this is an unending day, that there's a sense in which it wasn't simply closed out in a particular period of hours, but that the Lord ceased what He was doing 
the work of creation, that is, and ceased it forever and hasn't taken that work up again. Now, Sabbath is an opportunity that not only is created for mankind to enjoy just some physical good in a change from the weary routines of commerce, but it's for our spiritual good. The Lord set it apart. He made it holy, set apart, put in a different category, and tells us that, look, as we say it in our phrase today, not every day is yours to use 24-7 for yourself and for your own benefit. But by ceasing from commercial things as far as you can and by resting in God through deliberate worship, we have this day, this opportunity (coughs) to be fortified in God. And to see, perhaps better, the purpose of our labor on six other days as we stand back from it and get a little distance, bring it into sharper focus. <coughs> Excuse me. A seventh-day Sabbath in the Old Testament, of course, is something that marked both promise and privilege as mankind entered into the good enjoyment of God's creation. A first-day Sabbath in the New Testament marks something slightly different, the assurance for the Christian that we already enjoy what we call the rest of God through the finished redemptive work of Jesus Christ, and I'll speak about that this morning. But the first subject to examine here from Genesis 2 is to realize that God's creation is consummated And his other work of redemption is about to begin. God's creation is consummated, and his other work of redemption is about to begin. The Scripture says, By the seventh day the Lord had finished the work he had been doing. So on that day he rested from all his work. There's two notions here that have to be mentioned. One is God's satisfaction, and the other is God's cessation. By satisfaction, I refer to verse 31 of the previous chapter that I landed on last time and gave some emphasis, that the creation was a matter of perfection, and that God could take joy and delight in it. There wasn't anything that could be done any better. Wouldn't you like to be able to say about your work as you left on a Friday, why, there's no loose ends. There's, there's no appointment I've, I've failed to make. There's no phone call that I haven't followed through on. There's nothing unfinished on my desk. There's nothing that was pushed over from the previous week into this week that I didn't get done. I can walk away and know that it, I could not have done anything any better. Have you had a week like that ever? I haven't. But the Lord did. The Lord God had a perfect creation, and he could step back from it full of delight and say, it's consummated, it is finished, and I take pleasure in this cosmos and in the man and the woman who are the premier creations now given to be landlords in it. But in addition to this idea of satisfaction, you have to think about cessation, the word rest. What does it mean? It does not mean the usual thing that immediately comes into your mind. I said to my wife as I was leaving this morning, you have to be sure 
that you close your eyes and get a nap this afternoon because we're going to Maryland and preaching tonight, coming back. I know we'll be back late. She'll be exhausted. You need to rest. And that's what we think the word rest means. You're tired, you sleep, or you just go idle for a while and recover. Well, that isn't what it means in the exact context of Genesis here. Isaiah 4.28 says, The creator of the ends of the earth does not grow tired or weary. The word to rest here does not mean to relax. It does not mean to close your eyes and take a nap. It does not mean to recline somewhere and read a book. It simply means to stop. It means to cease what you were doing previously. The same as every red stop sign you've ever come up to says, stop. It doesn't say take a nap. It says, stop your forward progress, look around, and then, of course, you can go again. Well, God looked at his creation, and he stopped creating. All the species he intended to create evidently were there according to their kinds. Yes, there would be continuing dynamic development within the creation, and many changes would take place and so on, as the the creation wasn't a static thing. It was a living, organic creation. But God didn't have to make anything new anymore. And so he stopped. He rested. He ceased and desisted, and he took up his throne of lordship over the creation. Now, you might think then that this feeds the idea that's kind of popular in some minds of people we call deists who have a certain notion of God. They might even think of the biblical God and call him creator. But they think differently than we do because their idea is the famous clockmaker idea that God made the clock of the world. He manufactured it. He got all the gears to fit. Then he wound it up, and it was a long, long-term spring on that clock so that God could just step back and say, there, let it unwind now on its own. I won't have to ever touch it or do anything to it. I can go somewhere else, and the world will run itself. Well, that deistic idea is not taught by the Bible. God wasn't saying to Adam and Eve, I'm done here. It's all yours now. Good luck. Don't call me if you have any problems. Here are the keys. It's all yours. That's not what he said. Because we see through all of the Bible, God continuing to superintend. And and we talk about his works of providence, the ways that he's involved in history, upholding all that he has made. And in fact, if God was to withdraw his upholding providential power in the things he has made, the universe would decline and crash faster than the stock market has over the last three weeks or so. Jesus made an important comment to help us on this subject in John chapter 5, verse 17, when he said, my father is always at work to this very day, and I am working. Well, we asked what he was talking about. We were already told he wasn't creating anymore because he stopped. And yet there was a turning by God from the work of creation to his other work as king and lord, as providential ruler, and especially to the new work that he would have to undertake as soon as the events of Genesis 3 had unfolded and man had fallen into sin, the work we call redemption that God would in all aspects of 
uh, his wise planning have to carry out a plan of rescue for the man and the woman and all their descendants. And we see throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament as well, God persevering in this work of redemption, doing the things that would be necessary, making promises about it in the Old Testament, and then, of course, bringing Christ into the world and leading to the events of the cross and the resurrection. God was working. That's what Jesus meant when he said, my father is still at work even to now, and I am working. They were doing the work of redemption. So you should understand as you look at Genesis, first of all, when it says he rested, that God was ceasing, consummating the work of creation, but by no means going on vacation. He was ready to begin his work as king and Lord and his work as redeemer as the Bible goes forward. Well, secondly, you may wonder some things about this concept we call Sabbath. And why is it that we start here at Genesis 2, 1 to 3, we're talking about the last day in 7, in which we would call Saturday in our naming of the days, and say that the Lord consecrated that day and set it apart and said it's to be holy, and then we read the commandment, which I'm not going to elaborate on much, but Exodus 20, again through Moses, the Lord speaks and says, remember the Sabbath day, labor for six days, and then the last day should be holy. And people say, well, How did we get to this Christian Sabbath that's not the seventh day, it's the first day? Let me speak for a minute about the Christian Sabbath as a day of rest. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, the Scripture says. He set it apart. He wanted it to fulfill a different purpose than all the other days. Now, the theologians have a name for this. They call it a creation ordinance. In other words, a law that is embedded even in the pattern of creation. It's not something, as you saw from the two passages I read, that first came into being with the commandments. Now, there are certainly some people that would say that. Where where did we get this idea of Sabbath from? Oh, the Ten Commandments. No, that's not correct. It's a creation ordinance. It was there well before the statement of the formal law. And already set apart that God would say, you as mankind are going to have to follow a pattern and it's going to be good for you and good for everything if you will follow my pattern of dealing with the mechanical aspects of the universe in six days and then with the mysteries of knowing me in the seventh. Well, just last week at the door, I think someone knew I was coming to this text and they asked me the question, how in the history of Christianity, did we come to switch from the seventh day to the first day? That's a very good question. You may not know how that happened. As a matter of fact, it was not something that in the course of Scripture was suddenly announced with a, you know, a great big decision. In fact, it happens very quietly, and and yet it happens so convincingly and for such a good reason that we believe it was a correct change. It occurs, of course, because the first day of the week is the day in which Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And so it becomes for us a wonderful day. We read how they went on the first day, what we would call Sunday, and found the tomb empty and found Jesus had risen. Well, what then? Did they sit down and say, hey, we ought to change our worship to Sunday, the first day, because of the resurrection. Let's have a big council and vote on it. 
No, that didn't happen. Or at least if it happened, we're not told. Because what we find out is in, in a number of texts in the New Testament, some of the passages would be Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, 1, Revelation 1.10, other places where it just matter-of-factly reports that on the first day of the week they were gathered and they were worshiping. And we seem to see that, that a change has taken place. It wasn't announced. The reasoning for it, the justification wasn't presented to us, but it was the apostles of Jesus who made this change. It isn't something the church did way after the biblical time. The apostles did it. They had the authority to do that and not be questioned about it began worshiping on the first day of the week. They kept the moral principle of one day to the Lord, but they said, let it be the day that Jesus came from his tomb. And so the Christian Sabbath became different than the seventh day from that time on. Now, what New Testament Christians were actually doing on the Lord's Day was not just seeking a day off from their jobs, And remember, you know, if you think we have economic problems, and we do, many of you have complications in trying to wrestle with, how in the world do I do that? I've got a boss who doesn't think that way. I work for a store that's open or a company or this, and I do this, or I'm a nurse. I have to be at the hospital. Yes, there are many complications. There were complications in those days. Some early Christians were slaves who weren't even given a day off. So it's always been difficult to find that compromise with the economy and with your job. But what those who came together for worship were doing was resting in the security of belonging to God through Jesus Christ. You see, human beings are restless people, aren't they? We all are people who, without Christ at least in our lives, have a basic unrest and unease. Psalm 62 has the psalmist say, Find rest, my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from Him. And you may have it ringing somewhere in your brain that didn't somebody say something about that, a guy named Augustine. Probably his most famous quote from the 6th century when Augustine said, My heart is restless until it finds its rest in Thee, O God. Our observance of the Lord's Day marks the fact that Jesus Christ did everything necessary by offering Himself, by rising from the dead, by conquering sin and death. He did what is necessary for us to be at peace with God. So it is a day that we not only stop doing commercial things, but we do actually rest. But I don't mean that in a physical sense. A spiritual sense, we rest in the Lord. We lean upon Him, and we entrust ourselves to Him knowing what He's done. There's a wonderful discussion in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 about this subject where the subject of entering God's rest comes up. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 3 talks about the Israelites following Moses and says, look, when when they were unbelievers, when they wouldn't trust the Lord, they did not enter his rest. Now, in the literal sense, that means they didn't come to the promised land. They died in the desert, and they didn't find the land full of rest and, and comfort and that the Lord had promised they would have. But it meant something spiritually, too. They were non-believers, and they did not come to an eternal state of belonging to the Lord. 
Hebrews 4.1 carries it on and says, the promise of entering God's rest still remains. The door's open for you to enter God's rest. And then Hebrews 4.3 says, we who believe have entered into God's rest. We have entered what Israelites missed by their unbelief. And so Hebrews talks about a Sabbath rest for the people of God in a broader way, not just something that happens one day of the week, but a whole sense of belonging to God and enjoying the blessings of His fellowship and being secure to know that you've been restored to that state of fellowship that Adam and Eve had before they sinned. You really are able, in a sense, as a Christian believer, to go back to the seventh day, the day creation was finished, and say, I enjoy oneness with God, the way things were before sin entered the world and disturbed it all. Well, there also is, of course, this ceasing and desisting from worldly commerce as far as it is possible, except for works of mercy and works of necessity. And many of you are caught up in those works of necessity. We don't expect firemen to necessarily be unavailable on the Sabbath day. I hope they're, they're not unavailable for everyone's sake. Or doctors or nurses or many other people that do necessary things. But we're called by God to look at our lives and look at what we're doing and say, does this have to happen on the Lord's day? Could I perhaps even seek another place of employment if I'm constantly bound by having to take away the Lord's Sabbath? But if we get involved with what I can do and what I cannot do, you know, can I mow the lawn? Can I not mow the lawn? I, my house was built by an Amishman five years ago. He's a wonderful man. Who, yeah, I believe he knows the Lord, and he was a good friend, and he knew I was a pastor. And when, the, when he finished my house, he, he pointed down the hill just below me where the Amish bishop for that district lives. I can see his house from mine. And he said, now, Michael, I know you care about these things. I hope you'll remind your neighbors not to mow their lawns on Sunday because the bishop will be unhappy. I didn't like being made the lawnmower policeman for my neighborhood. And, and I don't think that's the issue about Sabbath. You know, it's, it's not a day, of course, if we can stay away from the mall, if we can stay away from our own jobs and our offices. And, and of course, today your office sometimes is right there at the computer, and you just have to stay away from that. And say, I don't need to do this today. But it's also not a day for inactivity or idleness. It's a day for a different activity, a set-apart activity, and that primarily means worship. You know, one of the most important things we can do for people we care for, and one of the ways they know we care for them, is that we have time for them, right? If you were able to say to somebody that maybe is in trouble or having particular difficulty, and you say, look, you matter to me. Here's my number. This is my private cell number or whatever. I will always have time for you. I will always take your call. No matter what, I will be there. You will have my undivided attention. You will be on my schedule if you call for me. Isn't that one of the best gifts you can give as a friend? And then, of course, follow through on it if you say it. Well, isn't that, too, what we're saying with the Lord's Day? Lord, you've asked this small thing of me. I love you. 
I'm grateful to you. I'm grateful to be your child by faith in Christ. I will always have time for you, Lord. And since you've called for me, I will observe the time that you've appointed to fellowship with your people. I will make this day of ceasing other things to be a priority. Not as some legalistic command and negative-spirited do's and don'ts and going around with a doer face, you know, and looking as... I, I heard that, that... I don't think it's probably true, but somebody said at one time long ago under the most rigid Sabbath laws of a past century, somebody was fined for smiling on Sunday. That's a little hard to believe. If that did happen, it was wrong. I think actually the Lord's Day is a day for a very big smile all day long in the joy of the Lord. And in fact, that's the last thing I want to say to you, that it's not just a day for ceasing. It is a day of holy joy. We should be concerned about this set-apart activity of worship and works of mercy, but we should also be concerned about the spirit in which they're done and the motive for which they're done, not a motive of necessity. Oh, no, it's Sunday morning. I have to go to church but a motive of joy. Do you look forward to being with God's people in worship? Is it something you approach with the same kind of gladness you might approach if you had, if you're a rabid Phillies fan and you had tickets for the World Series? You'd approach that with joy. Do you approach worshiping with God's people that way? I think of the two disciples who are not named in the New Testament in Luke 24. On the evening of Easter Day, you remember how Jesus joined them on the road and walked along and talked about the things that had happened and and then opened the Scriptures and told them why these things should have happened and so on, and they still didn't fully know who He was until just before He left them. And then they recalled and they talked to each other and said something wonderful. They said, did not our hearts burn within us as He opened the Scriptures and explained them? Folks, has Sunday ever been a day of the burning heart for you? When you've said, this is great. This is, I'm learning things that are right at the core of my existence. I'm taking joy in this. I'm able to sing this hymn with liberated freedom and, and thankfulness to God. If you've never experienced that, you have a problem. Acts 2 tells us that the first Christians were eager to gather for worship. It says, with glad and sincere hearts. But we know you can gather for worship without that spirit, can't you? For any number of reasons. Think of the way we in America celebrate Memorial Day every May. My wife and I were married on Memorial Day back when it was always the 31st of the month. Now it's a Monday, of course. But Memorial Day... um, I would probably say that that Memorial Day, we didn't spend the day thinking a whole lot about soldiers who had given their lives for our country. But that is what Memorial Day is about. That's the reason we have it. But we all know that, of course, you know, it's the first fair weather of the spring. It's starting to get warm. And if it's a nice weekend, Memorial Day is the day for picnics and the beach and and family, and all those good things. And you can go through a whole Memorial Day and never even pause for a minute to think, what is this day about? Why do I have this day off from work? Oh, people have died for my freedom. But you can go through Memorial Day and never even think about that. 
And you can do the same thing with God's worship. You can go through his day and think, oh, great, it's Sunday. I don't have to roll out so early and fight the traffic and get to the office and grind my teeth at what the boss says. Ah, I can just relax. And you can go through the day and never think, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad because he's given me this opportunity. If you do that and if you miss that, it could be because your whole week of walking with the Lord is defective. Because you're so absent from him on Monday and Wednesday and Friday that he doesn't occur to you on Sunday. The Puritan writer Thomas Watson was a practical man. He wasn't one of the more high-flown Puritans in his theology. He was very down-to-earth, and he suggested preparation for the Lord's Day. Here's a little thing he had to say. When Saturday night approaches, he said, sound a retreat. Call your mind away from the world. Summon your thoughts to think of the great work of Sunday, the task that you have on Sunday. He said, Saturday preparation will work like the tuning of an instrument. It will fit the heart for worship. The same thing is is offered at the beginning of our service. We very deliberately have a time when we ask you to come into worship to be relatively quiet and, and not to have the bubbling conversation that you certainly should have as you go out. But come and pray. Come and think for a minute. Read a couple of the texts of Scripture that are going to be considered or read over a hymn. Take a few minutes to quiet yourself and say, Lord, I'm here I'm in anticipation. I believe you want to speak. I believe you you want to meet with us. You see, worship isn't something that happens just because you walk into a room where it's appointed to happen. Others in the room may be worshiping. Perhaps you're not. It doesn't automatically happen. It's something that requires preparation and passion and motivation. How many toes would I step on? I better look at the ceiling so nobody thinks I'm looking at you to suggest you might get to worship on time, to have those few minutes to stop and be quiet and say, Lord, speak. Your servant is here and listening. Our passion in Sunday worship, our joy in leisure time that Sunday gives us with our families and with the works of nature and and perhaps works of mercy is like an active resting in the arms of Christ, falling back into his arms, knowing that they're there. They hold us. They keep us secure. And we say this, the Sabbath rest to the Lord should be a small foretaste. And we do it so imperfectly that it's it's probably no better than the littlest taste on the end of your tongue. But it should be a foretaste of what our eternal rest is going to be when we are face-to-face with our God and Savior and enjoy Him without any interruption or anything in the way. Our Sundays are a rehearsal for heaven. The Heidelberg Catechism is a German catechism coming from times after the Reformation. It has a question and an answer regarding each of the Ten Commandments and here's, there's a question that says, what does God require of us in the fourth commandment? It's a longer answer, but that first mentions withdrawing from 
weekday work and so on, but then it contains this sentence I want you to hear. It has the one answering say this, I will yield myself to the Lord for him to work by his Holy Spirit in me and thus begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. You see, Jesus, who is creator, sustainer, and Lord of the universe, invites you to do that. And he said it to us so memorably in Matthew 11 when he said, Come to me, you who labor and are heavily burdened down. Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you. Learn of me. And you will find rest for your souls. Dear Father, we thank you for the opportunity your day represents. We have mismanaged it. We have sinned against it. And we know we will always do that imperfectly. We will always have an imperfect Sabbath. But thank you for letting us taste in our songs as we revel over your word, as you draw us to confront the deep things of the gospel and of your grace. You remind us a little bit of what eternity will be. Father, teach us and draw us to desire this day, to use it in a way pleasing to you, that we might better praise you all our days. Amen.